According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 7 is our text this morning, and we are all the way up to verse uh, 25, down through verse 31. It's a very long chapter, and... um, This event, this episode is going to take us through the end of the chapter, down to verse 52. I want to pick up where where we left off last week in dealing with the crowds. But then, in particular, we zero in in verse 25 to the people of Jerusalem. Remembering that, for the most part, we have multiple crowds that are here. You know, how many people are in a crowd yeah, any number, that's right, a large number. But And then if you have two crowds, a crowd of these people and a crowd of those people, and you put them together, do you have a great big crowd or do you have two crowds? And then what happens if you have, say, eight crowds? And if each one by themselves was a crowd and you've got eight of them put together or you have 30 of them put together? Yeah, what do you really have? That's right. Now, you have a pilgrimage in terms of the required feasts uh, on their way to Jerusalem. And that's what we have here. And so I think in trying to sort out the crowds, uh, we pick up on a very individual group here called the people of Jerusalem. And these are the locals. These are the people that uh, three times a year are used to having their town crowded out by all these out-of-towners coming in and filling up the inns and and getting so full that you have to pack people off in a manger somewhere, that kind of thing. Um, But they're not only are they the folks that are from around here, but they're also the folks that actually have a clue as to the murder that the uh, religious leaders are plotting and have been plotting since a year and a half ago when in John chapter 5, Jesus healed a man by the pool of Bethesda. And so we have... Uh, some of the light bulbs are starting to come on in uh, in the verses that we're going to look at today. All right, before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer, making sure that each believer priest is equipped with God the Holy Spirit and prepared to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the faithfulness that you show towards us each and every day, the, the faithfulness that you manifest in our lives the way that you faithfully provide uh, exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. Father, on this day, we want to praise you for your provision in terms of the teaching of the Word of God and the privilege and opportunity we have to study to show ourselves approved. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Feast of Tabernacles. And we've covered six points of study, each one or most of them with subpoints, picking up with... Really what we dealt with last week in point six, verses 21 through 24, Jesus rebukes the Jews for their failure to respond to his previous rebuke. If you have not been a part of the study or uh, I'm kind of leaving you behind a little bit this morning with points one through five, and I would just encourage you to get on the website and get the MP3 files for uh, classes we've already had. But we are in the midst of the Feast of Jerusalem, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. He's waited until about halfway through the feast before he could hold it in no longer and just starts preaching. And uh, in the midst of the feast, we read in verse 14, Jesus went up to the temple, began to teach. And the Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? In other words, he didn't graduate from our school, so as far as we're concerned, he, uh, he is illiterate. He is uneducated and has no business teaching. How then does he have such wisdom in the things that he is teaching and so jesus answered them and said my teaching is not mine but it is his who sent me my cell phone is mine however and i'm accountable for turning it off there we go okay could have been dangerous there for a moment all right if anyone is willing to do his will he will know of the teaching and to me verse 17 really ought to have a larger application in terms of our um, recognition that we are not merely hearers of the Word of God who delude themselves, but doers. 
And in order to be a doer, you have to be willing to be a doer. That means you have to have the awareness of what it means to be uh, living the word of God, the price that must be paid, what the cost is for being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because once you put your hand to the plow, you cannot look back. And so if you're willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching. Believers that are positive to learning and applying the word of God are uh, provided for in terms of recognizing the teaching. He gets pretty confrontational in verse 19 where he says, Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you does the law? None of you carries it out. Why do you seek to kill me? And this gets into the conflict that we looked at under point five, where, uh, well, first of all, under point four, where he explained his credentials that were superior to anything they could have dreamed of. And then uh, under point five, their shock. And the only reason I'm reviewing it here this morning is because the statement in verse 20 uh, shows an unawareness of what's going on. Um, the crowd answered, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. And this shows the relative uninformed circumstance. You know, political operatives can really run the show so far as they keep the masses relatively uh, ignorant, relatively stupid. Uh, The more informed the populace gets, the harder it is for uh, certain philosophies to control things. And uh, we're observing some of that here. Now, the contrast in verse 20, though, where the crowd is oblivious, the crowd at large, all the multitudes that are simply gathered here for the season, is in contrast with verse 25, where the locals, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they were seeking to kill? See, they know that there is a um, execution warrant that has been signed. They don't use the word murder. They do say kill. And the recognition being that, you know what, Um, it's okay to put a heretic to death. It's all right to stone a false prophet. Moses commands that. The law is perfectly just to put down the wicked doer. All right. But where they start to open their eyes to say, wait a minute, this is the one they're seeking to kill. And then look at their next question. In verse 26, is this actually the Christ? Even worse than that, do they know he's the Christ? Do they know he's the Christ? In other words, they it's one thing for them to want to put a heretic to death. But if they know he's the Christ, if they know he's not a heretic and they want to maintain the illusion that he is a heretic in order to kill him, you see how that makes a difference? It makes all the difference in the world. And so the inhabitants of Jerusalem here are just starting to wake up. And that's really what I want to focus on during this hour today. But I think what we dealt with last week took the time to go back to John chapter 5 and show the contrast here. Because when he rebukes them, he is bringing them back into remembrance of what he had done the last time he was in town. Verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one deed and you all marvel. This is with reference to the miracle in John chapter 5 where that lame man by the pool of Bethesda was, uh, was instantaneously healed, commanded to take up his pallet and go home. And of course, it caused a big scandal because it was the Sabbath and all the Sabbath monitors were there on hand to point out that he was breaking their Sabbath. He was violating their rule as far as how they had taken control of what it means to break the Sabbath. Search the scriptures all you want. You're not going to find a verse that says, uh, thou shalt not carry your pallet home on, uh, after being healed by the Christ on the Sabbath day. You know, the commandments of the Sabbath were to do no work. In other words, to not be pursuing your income, to not be pursuing the things of secular life for, uh, for temporal life living. But if your animal falls into a ditch, you can you can pull them out. That's not breaking the Sabbath. And everybody does that. Everybody has the common sense that to do somebody well or to save a life or keep someone from getting hurt, that's not Sabbath breaking. That the the prohibitions on the Sabbath were against pursuing your occupation, pursuing your uh, secular career. And so obviously if a sheep falls into a pit and you can pull the sheep out, that doesn't break the Sabbath then a man that's, that's being healed by an act of God isn't breaking the Sabbath either. 
The Sabbath is a day for doing the things of God. So now, as far as John 5 goes, I guess one more time, let's hold your finger there and go back to John 5. Highlight two final issues I think we didn't get to last week. Verses 39 through 47 is really a narrower context. The event itself backs all the way up to encompass pretty much the entire chapter. You stop to consider how accountable these people are. Stop to consider how, this is the first of the two things I really want to get across. They know this is the Christ, or they should know, because of the testimony that comes, the rebuke they receive. When he says, it is undeniable. Now, verse, um, let me see. Making sure that we stress this well enough from a week ago. Verse, uh, all the testimony here, starting with John in verse 33. You have testified to John, or you have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. This would be John the Baptist. And he heralded the arrival of the Christ before Jesus ever appeared on the scene, before the baptism event. And he testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. In other words, God is going above and beyond. The one witness should be sufficient. A prophet of God, the first prophet since Malachi, is saying, Here he is. Well, Let's give a second witness. Even under law, things had to be confirmed with two or three witnesses, did they not? And so um, there's a testimony greater than the testimony of John. And, that, and those include the works, verse 36. The works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. So there's a second testimony, the miracles that he was uh, privileged to accomplish. Plus the Father himself in verse 37. The Father who sent me, he has testified of me. Now what's interesting is that on that day that the Baptist announced here he is, the heavens were opened. And a voice declared out of the heavens, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And yet, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You know how convicting that is? Some of these same individuals may have been there that day, may have been there at the Jordan River, may have heard the heavens open or seen the heavens open, may have heard the thundering and yet not had ears to hear, not yet not been equipped to recognize the testimony the father had indeed uttered on that very day. And then, of course, the ultimate witness, you search the scriptures You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Second thing I want to stress this morning is one that I think doctrinal churches need to highlight, build a poster of, wallpaper their house with it. You can lose, you can miss the point entirely in Bible class. Does that shock you? You can miss the point entirely in Bible class. These Pharisees certainly did. They were, you can't, you can't mock or ridicule their scholarship. They were bright, educated, brilliant scholars, but they missed the point. You think that in them you have eternal life. Is there, is there a value to being in the Word of God? Yes, there is. But you have to, Be transformed by the word that you're living in. You have to live the word that you're living in. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling. Notice it comes back. The the, the value of the Christian walk is not in the intrinsic nature of the word, although that's infinite, but in the willingness of a believer to be transformed by the word, to live what they're learning. You have two believers in the pew right next to each other. One is willing to live the word, the other is not. It's the same word. It's worth far above rubies, it's infinitely valuable, it's divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. But two believers side by side in the pew, one's willing to use the word, one's not. I cannot stress this enough. You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You have to be uh, the, the transformation that takes place here as the word of God convicts. Cannot stress that enough. All right, so you think that was a pretty significant rebuke. You would think that from the spring of 32 A.D., this would be a group of people that would be so convicted and so hit hard that they'd want to do something about that conviction. They'd want to 
throw themselves at the Lord and say, you're right, we're following false teachers. We're not following the Word of God. We're not living a life that glorifies our Father. Instead, um, the plots against him intensify and he has to leave and actually doesn't even come back for the following uh, Passover. From John chapter 5 at Passover to John chapter 6, it's another Passover, but he's not coming back to Jerusalem. Instead, he's across the Sea of Galilee up on a mountain feeding 5,000. So it's this chain, and I don't want us to lose the significance of the sequence in the life of Christ from John 5 to John 6 to John 7 because it's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of John lately. The Galilean ministry has kept us primarily in the, uh, in the Synoptic Gospels. So this is now the context. And when we get to John chapter 7, they are now being rebuked a second time. I think in demonstration of the uh, forbearance of God. All right, and the subpoints we covered last week. One deed is a reference to Jesus' most recent work of power in Jerusalem in healing the man by the pool of Bethesda. That one deed. Of course, he's done hundreds of deeds. He's done all kinds of deeds. And they're witnesses to all, all those deeds. All right. Everybody's putting on sweaters. Is it getting cold? Oh, okay. I'll get my deacon back there to adjust the uh, thermostat. Okay. This is the one deed. And this was the last time he was in town. And isn't that interesting? You, you know you've left an impression when, when you first come back to town... It's still, even though it's a year and a half later, it's still the first thing off of people's lips when they, when they encounter you. See, left that impression. I encountered that in Spokane, as a matter of fact, and uh, hadn't been there for a year and a half, a couple of years even. And first thing people were asking about was the, um, the message I delivered the, the two years prior. And I didn't know what the guy was talking about. What are you talking about? And he said, the message you had the last time you were here, I Oh, yeah, okay, forgot about that. <laughs> in any event, he's back into town. He's probably thought of other things in the meantime since he's been feeding 5,000 and raising people from the dead and doing other things. But now that he's come back to town, where are they? What have they been stuck on? See, and they want to pick right up where the last episode left off. Secondly, true obedience to God in one aspect of the Christian way of life is not disobedience to God in any other aspect of the Christian way of life. Simply put, you cannot be disobeying God by truly obeying God. If, if you're in obedience to God to heal a man on the Sabbath, then you're not breaking the Sabbath because God told you to heal that man. If you're in obedience, true obedience to the will of God, and that's why you have to underline the word true, and you don't use obedience to the word of God as a license to commit a sin. The Pharisees were good at that. They, they manipulated the Corban procedures by which they could dedicate their funds to the Lord and avoid their uh, responsibilities to care for their parents, for example. That's not true obedience to the Word of God. And uh, I think part of what believers need to start figuring out is how in the plan of God everything is, um, is a win-win or is a obey, obey, obedience-obedience circumstance. It's not a give and take or uh, excel here at the expense of something else there. See, the world would have you believe that if you're going to thrive in one realm, then something else has to give. And you've got to sacrifice here in order to thrive there. And so how many men uh, alter, uh, offer up their families on the altar of career success? See, because the world says you can't have it all. Or how many women give up uh, bearing children or having a family life because they want to they fulfill their dreams or whatever they think they need to do to have meaning and fulfillment in their life. Again, it's cosmos thinking that says it's either or. And if you're going to do this, you have to sacrifice that. God says, no, you're going you're to have obedience in every realm. And so I'm expected to be the pastor God wants me to be. And I'm expected to be the husband God wants me to be. And I'm expected to be the father God wants me to be. And I can't sacrifice any of those or I'm disobedient in that particular realm. And so God expects obedience in every aspect of our lives. Thirdly, judging with righteous judgment. This is where he closes, where he says, do not judge according to appearance. That's what the world does. 
That's what the world does. And this message comes repeatedly in the scripture. Samuel was guilty of this. He's in Jesse's house and Jesse's oldest boy comes in and man, Samuel was impressed. He looked at this old guy, this son, the oldest firstborn son, and he was, you know, evidently quite a specimen. Tall, dark, handsome, and all that. And, and Samuel goes, man, that's our next king. What a deal. And God said, no, quit looking at external appearances. God looks at the heart. And he made seven sons pass by, and, and then none of them were it. So when he found out that there was one last little kid, the runt of the litter, the smallest one, the youngest one, he was out there watching the sheep. Jesse didn't even feel proper bringing him in. Just leave him out there with the sheep and bring in, bring in the older ones. So God looks at the heart. Now here you realize what this is though. This is an order to do what only God can do. Only God can look upon the heart. But when we are transformed by the Word of God, what viewpoint do we pick up? That's right, we have God's viewpoint, God's way of looking at things. Not that we have power to to look on the heart, or that, not, not that we have power to do what only God can do, but that's the standard of judgment. In other words, we let Him have the perspective and we stay obedient to His perspective in everything that we do. So do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. If we obey God's perspective, we can't go wrong. Judging with righteous judgment means that an instructed believer makes a righteous decision a righteous decision in life based upon a comprehensive and mature knowledge of God himself. In other words, know who God is, know what his purpose is, know what his objectives are, know what pleases him, know what he's trying to accomplish, and become a fellow worker with God himself. All right. Now, point seven. Jesus' faithfulness to minister in the face of conflict resulted in a faith harvest. He's going to bear a lot of fruit here on this episode, which I believe is why God the Father did not permit him to skip this festival. Up in Galilee, he told his brothers, he said, you go to that feast, I'm not going. And they left and they went up to the feast. And then something changed Jesus' mind and he went. All right. I don't believe he was lying to his brothers. I believe that he was... uh, he was waiting for divine guidance. He didn't, he at this point had no intention to go and that's okay. So long as we're willing to change our minds when God changes our minds, <laughs> say, father, I, I don't really have any, this, here's an op- open door opportunity. It uh, dropped in on my lap. I wasn't really planning on it. I'm still not planning on it. But if, if this is what you have for me, then, then make it clear. This is what I need to do. And then once that conviction comes, then I got to say, well, wait a minute. I need to be obedient. I need to change my plans. I didn't intend to. All right? And this is the thing. You've got to be humble to the changes as God leads in that realm. Some men are too stubborn to do that, though. Oh, did I say men? I'm sorry. I mainly got women here this morning. There's, there's two men present. Women might be the same way. I don't know. I can't figure out women. But men, men will oftentimes back themselves into a corner. Because of something they said. And then, by golly, can't change now. Can't back down now. This is what I said I was going to do. And so if I, if I change my mind or back down or do something different, then that's a, that's a defeat or a surrender or something wrong. So, by golly, I said it. I'm going to do it. There it is. All right. Now, if if you're wrong, you're wrong. And God shows you otherwise, then... Then be obedient. You, you, you can never go wrong by being obedient. You're better off admitting you were wrong and, and then doing something right. Because if you don't, then you're wrong twice. You're wrong for the first time for being wrong. And then you're wrong a second time for not admitting that you're wrong and actually obeying God. So now you're, you're wrong twice. Yeah, that's, uh, that's going to do the trick, isn't it? Okay. So some of the people, let's get to these, this passage here. Because Jesus is going to bear fruit. He's going to bear fruit. And this is why the father brought him to Jerusalem. This is why the father changed his mind or made clear why he needed to be there. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? Look, look at him. He is speaking publicly and they are saying nothing to him. Why would that be? If he, yeah, all of a sudden it's dawning on them. Not only is he speaking publicly, but he's speaking powerfully. Absolutely speaking powerfully. Now I'm starting to realize, why aren't they arresting him yet? 
If he's a heretic, if he's a false teacher, why are they letting him go on and on and on like that? Why don't they get him now? If he's, a, if he's guilty, get him. He's right there. Why won't they lay a hand on him? And then, it's almost like they can't bring themselves to voice this, but they do. The rulers do not really know that he is the Christ. Do they? Do, do, you, hear, do you hear the skepticism in that? The, the little word like, really? The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ. And then that hesitant, do they? Actually voicing a question that you're afraid to voice because the answer is starting to become very clear. That they're not laying, hand, they're not laying hands on him. They're afraid of him. They want him dead. They're plotting his death. But in an open public venue, they... Uh, they can't lay hands on them. See, we'll see. They have a desire to do that. We can get down to um, verse thirty there, seeking to seize him. They wanted to. They put plans together to do that, but no man laid his hand on him. Okay. Um, so the hesitant question in verse twenty-six, verse twenty-seven. However, we know where this man is from. Now, how do they know that? And here's something they don't know. Whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Well, that's just plain wrong. But it shows how the crowds can become manipulated. It shows how the locals are so under the dominion of these leaders, these teachers, that they only know what the leaders want them to know. And they're ignorant of what, of what uh, the leaders don't want them to know. So Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I am from. And it's not a, uh, a Nazareth or Bethlehem conflict. It's not Galilee versus Judea here. This is his origin from the throne of God. I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Whom you do not know. The, the crowd here, by and large, are unregenerate. They are unbelievers. All right. Verse 29, I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. See, here's the thing. If you're under conflict, you can have confidence knowing that the Father is in control of the situation. And when it's your time, it's your time. There's nothing you can do to stop it. When it's not your time, it's not your time. And there's nothing to worry about. But many of the crowd believed in him. How about that? A harvest is born. Fruit is born. I think because the Lord wasn't backing down and they looked at this and they saw that testimony. Many of the crowd believed in him and they were saying when the Christ comes. And here's one of these other another hesitant question they almost can't bring themselves to voice it and yet they do and they're it's leading to this inescapable conclusion when the christ comes he will not perform more signs than those which this man has will he in other words they can't imagine anybody else with more evidence more testimony more proof of being the christ To me, that's the saddest thing about rabbinic Judaism in the 21st century. Jewish people today, whether they're Orthodox or Reformed or middle-of-the-ground types, moderate, okay? I think, I think that's how it works. Uh, Orthodox are the most conservative. Uh, they call themselves Reformed. They're the ultra-liberal Jewish types. Anyway, there's three broad classifications of, of Judaism today. But the idea that they're waiting for the Christ to be revealed. What are they waiting for? There is no one who will arise. Indeed, there is no one who can arise capable of presenting the testimony, the evidence, and the proof that Jesus of Nazareth uh, produced in the first century AD. If, if there was any question as to his divine lineage, any question as to his descent as a son of David, the rightful heir to the throne of David, the, the genealogical records were maintained in the temple. And they couldn't dispute that. The, the only thing they could do is, is uh, mock his birth 
and uh, accuse his parents of immorality, which didn't do a thing for changing the uh, the, the legality of his heirship. By the way, I got to tell you that. You know, if you look at a birth certificate and then you look at a marriage certificate and you find that there's less than nine months in between there, okay, well, then you can, you can figure out, anyone can, but guess what? It does not change the legality, the legal heirship of Jesus Christ as the son of David, the, the inheritor, the, the one entitled to the, uh, the throne of David. Somebody rises today and claims to be the Christ. <laughs> no records, no documentation, no proof. All right. And that's just simply in the secular, earthly concept of birth records. <laughs> Forget the miracles and the divine testimony and everything else, or the timeline provided by the book of Daniel that decreed after 69.7's Messiah, the prince, will be cut off and have nothing. You know, the, the, at least the medieval rabbis finally admitted that to say, you know, that that coincided with first century. That could not be applicable any other time. All right, let's look at some issues here. So point A. The inhabitants of Jerusalem. The inhabitants of Jerusalem. And here's where we start to see the breakdown between the crowds at large that were in from all over town, all over the country, all over the world. The inhabitants of Jerusalem begin to wonder if their religious leaders know the truth concerning Christ. They begin to wonder if their religious leaders know the truth concerning Christ. They know about the murder plot. That part they confess freely. This is the one they're they're seeking to kill. They know that the religious leaders desire this man's death. What they don't know is what are the leaders convinced of concerning him? Is he really, do they think he's a heretic or do they know he's the Christ? And they're simply acting as if he was a heretic. And that's, uh, that's significant. Now the crowds from elsewhere, the crowds from Galilee, the crowds from Decapolis, the crowds from these other regions, um, presumably they're here. The ones that, that were up on the, the mount being fed by the 5,000 at Passover time, presumably many of them are here. There could be people here in the crowds that were fed by the 5,000 or part of the 4,000 that were fed in the subsequent event and so forth. Crowds are here from all over. There, are, there is testimony here with respect to the miracles this man is doing. Notice multiple miracles. When Jesus said, I did one miracle and you seek to kill me, um, the one he's highlighting is the one that happened last time he was in town. And yet when they see that he's doing many signs in verse 31, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? There's people here that were up there on the mountain getting fed with the 5,000. There's people here that were in Nain when the widow's son died. There's believers here that were in all these towns throughout Galilee when he was ministering and performing miracles. See, those that were truly positive to the gospel message as he traveled for the last two and a half years now, leading up to this, do you think they're going to skip out on the Feast of Tabernacles? No, they're going to be there. This is their feast. This is their feast to acknowledge the, the, uh, the, the, the king of Israel. They're going to be there at this feast. And so you can just kind of imagine they're, they're sharing these stories. And the guy gets up and says, man, I was in this crowd of 5,000 and he multiplied the loaves and fishes. Another guy's going to be there. Man, I was in Nain and they were we were having a funeral for this boy and, and he came in the gate when we were coming out the gate and uh, he touched the thing and the boy came back to life. And they're comparing notes because no one had all the story. No one had all the miracles that were being done. But now they're gathered in Jerusalem and they're able to tell the story about who this teacher is and the things that he'd been doing. So they start to wonder. They start to wonder about their leaders. And they start to realize that uh, these leaders are planning evil. And they're doing so in the full knowledge of what they're doing. Secondly, the statement, no one knows. No one knows. It's a pretty telling ignorance. The statement, no one knows is a telling ignorance for the Jerusalemites. 
See, there were others from the crowds. They knew. When you look down to verses 41 and 42, they knew all about the, the promise in the book of Micah about how Bethlehem Ephrathah was going to uh, be the birthplace for the Christ. So the statement, no one knows. These are the Jerusalemites that are uttering it in verse 27. However, we know where this man is from. Now, how do they know that? Because their leaders have been telling them that there is a Galilean carpenter who is a heretic, who is a false teacher, who is a false prophet, who leads the people astray, and he needs to be put to death. That's what they've been hearing for a year and a half now. And probably when he didn't come to Passover this year, when he didn't show up for Passover in the spring of 32 A.D., I imagine there were some, uh, some stories told there too by the Pharisees. Well, why isn't he here? Because he's a heretic and he knows we're on to him. He's a false teacher and he knows that if he shows up here, he's going to be denounced for what he is. You can, you can just imagine all the stories they're telling when, why he didn't show up for Passover when he was across the Sea of Galilee up on the mountain feeding 5,000. You can tell all kinds of stories behind somebody's back when he's not there to, to refute any of it or to, to testify to the truth. So we know where this man is from. What else do you know? What else have you been listening to? What other gossip have you been listening to from the Pharisees? Whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Really? What else have the Pharisees been teaching you? You know, if you encounter something that's that blatant, well, who taught you that? You know, co-workers I used to have that were terrified that we're going to lose their salvation. Who taught you that? Well, a Bible teacher taught you that because the Bible says you can't lose your salvation. Well, what do you mean? My pastor taught me that. Really? <laughs> Any idea why? You know, the, the thing is, if, if, you're, if you are enslaved to what a teacher gives you and nothing, and, and nothing beyond that, pathetic. You're supposed to search the Scriptures, see if these things are so. Your pastor could be wrong. Check him out. So, we don't know where he's coming from. Now, remember, this goes all the way back to the babe in the manger and the wise men show up from the east and they're like, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And, and Herod was pretty upset by that because he was king of the Jews. The Romans told him so. And so, he, who does he bring in? He brings in the religious leaders. Where is this Christ going to be born? And they know right off the bat, Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephrathah. Micah chapter 5, if you're not familiar with that. And so... Um, they know, the Jewish leaders know, they're not stupid. And so Herod sends off the soldiers. And they're going to kill all the babies and all the male children and do what he can to remove the threat. Herod wants to remove the threat to his throne. And of course, Satan wants to remove the threat that's been hanging over him ever since Genesis 3.15. That the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. And so uh, murdering those babies, of course, the father, this is the glory of the father's plan. The gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh arrives just in time, and Joseph and Mary can finance a quick escape out of town. And they can live for however many years they need to live in, in seclusion, hidden away in Egypt. And Satan doesn't know. Herod doesn't know. Well, Herod dies pretty quick after that. But Satan doesn't know if his plot worked or didn't work. He murdered all the baby boys in Bethlehem, and Rachel's weeping for her children, and Satan thinks he's okay, maybe, Hope that worked? He doesn't know. Until about 30 years later, a man comes to be baptized at the River Jordan and the Holy Spirit descends as a dove and the Father's voice booms out of heaven. Behold, my beloved Son. And only then does Satan know that it didn't work with the, the Bethlehem massacre of the babies. So when they say we don't know where the Christ may come from, that's pretty ignorant. That's, that would be like a Bible church today saying uh, they don't know what's, what's the difference between a pastor and a deacon. Like, what? Are you kidding me? You should know that. Everybody should know that. 
or what's the difference between a husband and a wife? Or, you know, just being confused over something that basic. This is something they've been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years. Waiting for their Christ to be born. Every facet of the promise is, is drilled into these people. And yet, here's something that they want to now dampen. You, you might imagine that uh, for the last two and a half years now, since his public announcement, since the first encounters, they've learned everything they can learn about Jesus of Nazareth. They've, they've looked fully into it. They, they've figured out how this boy from Nazareth was really born in Bethlehem. They've investigated. They remember the, the census of, of Augustus. They remember everyone that going to Bethlehem to register in the birthplace of their fathers. They remember how these things happened. All right. And uh, how often do you think the book of Micah has been taught in the last two and a half years? I would suspect that for the last two and a half years leading up to this, not once has the book of Micah come up in a Pharisee's Bible class. Not once. Just like today, Isaiah 53 is not featured in Jewish services. Because it's too obviously pointing to the crucifixion of the sinless Lamb of God for the redemption of mankind. It's, it's, it's easy to ignore a passage and pretend it's not there if you don't want your people exposed to it. All right? In fact, most churches today don't even bother with Bibles. You can just show up and the scripture readings in the bulletin or the little lectionary is there. You've got a, a selection of Bible readings along with your hymns and your other devotionals and your responsive readings and stuff like that. Don't waste your time with a Bible. You're not smart enough to understand it anyway. We've got scholars that can look into it and we'll preach at you and tell you how to live. And how many churches am I describing today? Most of them. Search the scriptures diligently and see if these things are so. All right. So it's a telling ignorance for the Jerusalemites compared with the others from the crowds. And, uh, and this is why, again, there's disagreement. This skips ahead to a passage we'll get to uh, in upcoming classes. But verse 40, some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying this certainly is the prophet. Remember the Deuteronomy 18 prophet. And there was debate whether the prophet was going to be the same as the Christ, whether the prophet was going to be the same as the forerunner, whether the prophet was going to be a third character. They didn't know. They, they grilled John the Baptist. Are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? Are you the forerunner? Who are you? Are you Elijah? So there's a group that says this has to be the prophet. Others were saying, no, nope, no, nope, this has to be the Christ. Not recognizing that the two are one and the same. The prophet is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? There's a crowd that says, that can't be right. And the reason why it can't be right is because we actually read our Bibles. Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? This guy's a carpenter from Nazareth. He can't be the Christ. Micah says he's coming from Bethlehem. See, now there's an answer for that, but you see where they are and where the disputes are arising. And the group that actually spends time in the Word is the group that's closest to figuring stuff out. So we have an ignorance, a telling ignorance for the Jerusalemites. And uh, I, I think that's a, that's a feature that believers ought to be aware of when they're evaluating ministries, when they're evaluating anything. Not only what is the message, what is being taught, but what is not being taught. What's being avoided? See. All right. Thirdly. Jesus' teaching ministry in the temple continued with clear statements of his origin and purpose. Verses 28 and 29 are about as blunt as you could get. Jesus' teaching in the temple continued with clear statements of his origin and purpose. You know, to me, the biggest attraction for doctrinal type teaching is similar to what this point's making here. Clear statements of origin and purpose. When the Bible is taught in its whole counsel from Genesis to Revelation and the framework 
of the Alpha and Omega plan of God is laid out there, what do we have? We have origin and we have purpose. Believers today know where we're from, why we're here, what we're doing, and where we're going. And it's real. Absolutely real. I think, I think, what, I think that is an attractive component. Uh, the, 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 the reality of truth is attractive to believers in general. But I think it's also attractive to men in particular who don't have time for phony religion or for something that's just hokey or something that's just kind of a feel-good thing, something that's about, you know, just making the wife happy or being a good person or blah, 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 playing some religious game. But truth that focuses on reality, that says this is what's going on. This is where we're coming from. This is who we are. This is where we're going. This is what we're doing. This is real life. And, and a man or any person could look at that and say, you know what? That's what I need. I need real life. I need to know who I am, where I'm going, what I'm doing, and why I'm doing it. And this is the, the teaching of Christ. And this is with authority, with power. This was unlike what they were getting from the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus cried out in the temple. That's a powerful word there showing the... Uh, the fervency, showing the, the passion behind his message here. Teaching and saying, and it it's communicates content. It's not just a rant. It's not just a, a loud verbal. There's a lot of guys that can cry out and not say a whole lot. <laughs> All right. Teaching and saying, you both know me. You know two things. One, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. It's a statement of origin. It's a statement of purpose. And it's in perfect agreement with what John the Baptist said. Perfect and total agreement with what John the Baptist said. All right. See, <laughs> these people today bug me to death. They well, Jesus was a good man. Fine moral teacher. Really? Is that why he was here? Why was he here? Why did God become flesh and dwell among us? Why? What was he doing? Why did he go to the cross? It's a fun conversation. Most of the times they're clueless. So you get a chance to clue them in. Oh, well, he was hated. He was rejected. You know, whatever. No, he was delivered up by the predetermined plan of God. He was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's why he came. You have a chance to speak about origin and purpose and, and lead someone to Christ and throw out that whole fine moral thing. Yes, he was moral, of course, but if you limit him to that, you are twisting the truth and you're serving the adversary. All right, the fourth thing out of this. Although attempts were made to arrest him, Jesus' message produced a faith response. Although attempts were made to arrest him, that's verse 30, Jesus' message produced a faith response. I don't know if you ever read, I mean, we get these newsletters from VMI and we get missionary reports. I get emails pretty frequently from Voice of the Martyrs, great organization. And you get the updates on what's going on elsewhere. It's a good reminder of how, you know, how good we've got it here. <laughs> really? And, and you realize that, that these guys in, in Burma, used to be called Burma, now it's Myanmar, okay? And, and they're under danger of arrest. And if they get caught with Bibles in their house, it's over. That's all the evidence that's needed. In some cases, they're not really, governments don't really need evidence. They can just go in and do what they want to do on a pretext. But if they get caught with these Bibles, they're in trouble. But they're doing it anyway. Why is that? Why not just uh, find some greener pastures, find somewhere safer? Well, you've got to be obedient to where the Father sends you and do what the Father has for you to do. And since Jesus didn't back down, since he went where he was supposed to go and he spoke the message he was supposed to give, my teaching is not mine, he delivers the Father's message according to the Father's timetable and the Father's itinerary, when and where he was supposed to be, and there is a faith response. Many of the crowd believed in him Verse 31, many of the crowd believed in him. 
And I think it's significant. Again, I've been pretty careful to observe the difference between the crowd and the inhabitants of Jerusalem here. Many of the crowd believed in him. Of course, believe is an active verb. The subject accomplishes the action of the verb. Faith, though, does not come simply out of nowhere. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith has to be grounded in the response to a revealed promise. And so there it is. The testimony came forth and many accepted that testimony and placed their trust in what it was that they were hearing. Now, let me ask you a question here. Verse 31, many of the crowd believed in him. It's a little bit different than when you got saved. Because everyone here in this room was saved after the crucifixion. Right? No no, no argument there? Okay. (laughs) Man, if you're 2,000 years old, I suppose, then chance you got saved before the crucifixion. No, we got saved after the crucifixion. When I believed in Christ... Specifically, I understood the content that the Son of God took my place on the cross. The wrath of God was poured out. My sins were judged. He took my place. I have forgiveness by His blood. That was the content. Now, He's six months away from the cross, in front of the cross. What did they believe? That He was going to the cross? Possibly, did they did they understand what was ahead, or did they know that the Redeemer was going to crush the serpent's head? The Redeemer was going to accomplish the purchase price. That's right. Whether it was going to be on a Roman cross or the specifics of what time, what day, what mechanism, or what have you, that may not have been exactly clear. But they were looking at their Christ. Generations before them were waiting for a Christ to come, waiting for a Christ to be revealed, waiting for a Christ to be born. Earlier generations knew that he was going to be born of the tribe of Judah. Other generations knew that he was going to be born of the line of David. Other generations knew that he was going to be born of a virgin mother. Later generations learned that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. And so as it got closer and closer, generations knew a little bit more than generations before them. Nevertheless, in some respects, the precise details of which were not laid out. All right. I think that you can, with the recognition of Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet. You can make a connection there probably and catch a, catch a drift. But what if, maybe that's easy for us looking back with hindsight <laughs> to say, there it is in Psalm 22. They pierced my hands and my feet. Could they have made that connection ahead of time? Probably not. It's hard to say. They were looking for some different things. That's right. They were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for... And this is what confused them. Um, and, and since I have a couple moments here, uh, how many times have I taken you to Second Peter? Or is it First Peter? First um, Peter chapter 1, verse 10. How many times? It was like a 55th time I've taken you here in the last three years. It's all right. I'll keep taking you there. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, you hindsight, blessed, church-age believers that are so fortunate and blessed and Glorious to be able to look back and see these things as past completed action. So, yeah, just go ahead and write that in there somehow. Squeeze that into your margins. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to Bob Bolander made careful searches and inquiries. All right? So they weren't lazy. They weren't sloppy. They weren't stupid. They studied hard. And beyond studying hard, they, as prophets, could inquire of the Lord. They actually could utter a prophetic utterance voice to the throne of heaven and anticipate a verbal voice back. That's what inquiring of the Lord is about. You and I can utter things all day long. We're not going to hear voices back, or we shouldn't hear voices back. If you're hearing voices, we'll, we'll talk. 
<laughs> All right. They made careful search and inquiry. Notice now, seeking to know what person or time. See, they were confused. Is it a person question or is it a time question? Person or time. Person or time. Person or time. You know, great debate, back and forth. Person or time. Person or time. The Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Sufferings and glory. Sufferings and glory. To them, how does that work? We've got scriptures that talk about suffering. Don't like those. <laughs> There's scriptures that talk about glory. Yeah. Those preach real well. How do they mesh? How are they true? How does this work? And, and obviously the ones about glory, throwing off the Gentile thrones and the Christ seated on the throne and dominion over the earth and kings of the earth bringing their treasures. Yeah, those are cool. Preach those. Sufferings? Oh, no, that's not cool. What, what, don't even like those. What are those about? So it was a conundrum, an absolute conundrum. How do they work? Is it a person issue or is it a time issue? Are there two different Christs coming? Is there going to be a suffering Christ and a glorying Christ? That might be the solution. And some people have said, you know what? That's got to be the answer. going to be a suffering Christ. There's going to be a reigning Christ. There's, going to, there's two Christs on the way. And they came to that conclusion. See, which is how John the Baptist, that's what he was thinking. When he was in prison and he sent his messengers to Jesus, are you the expected one or are we expecting another? Are you just the suffering one and the glorying one's coming? Or time. Maybe it's not two people. Maybe it's one person, but he's coming two times. And maybe the first time he comes, it's going to come to suffer. The second time he comes, he's coming to reign. Now, you and I, guess what? We can pin the gold star on that one because we know that's the right answer. But that's only with hindsight. After You know, it'd be like knowing... Two years ago, oh, I went green again, knowing two years ago that um, New York Giants were going to upset the uh, New England Patriots in the Super Bowl. Hmm. It's tired and unhappy. Yeah, I know the feeling. Um, so you see what I'm saying? With hindsight, we can know certain things. That ahead of time, there's no way to know. You just have to say, look, this is the scripture. I believe it. This is the scripture. I believe it. Both are true. I'm not going to get trapped into an either or. And if my finite humanity can't reconcile them, I don't have to. God the Father is going to work that out because he's not a liar. He's faithful and true. All right, so... It was revealed to them they were not serving themselves, but you, that a generation would come that would have things announced. And here we are. What a delight. Things into which angels long to look. Not even the angels have all the answers. They're watching us. They're learning while they watch grace unfold. All right. Point eight, and I've got to let you go with this because it's 11 o'clock and I've got to drive real fast out to Jollyville. The religious leaders fear overpowered their other fear. When you're trapped in cycles of fear, it's not a good place to be, particularly when one fear leads to another fear. And now you've got two competing fears. And if one of them overpowers the other fear, then sometimes uh, you're, you're, you make bad decisions based on even worse decisions. Now, they're afraid to lay hold of him because they're afraid of the reaction of the crowd. Because if they lay hold of him and the crowd thinks he's a prophet, they're afraid of that. But if they don't lay hold of him and too many of these people start believing in him, that's even worse. <laughs> that cannot be tolerated. They're, they're more afraid of people believing in him than they're afraid of the crowd condemning them for arresting him. So one fear overpowers another fear. And trapped in cycles of fear, they, uh, they, they realize poor decisions and produce additional poor decisions. And I'm out of time, so we'll pick up on this 
next week in verses 32 through 36. There's a lot of doctrine in 32 through 36 um, with the Pharisees and the muttering and the, uh, the promise that Jesus says he's about to, to depart. It's pretty different from the kingdom of heaven is at hand to saying, I'm out of here. All right. That's a contrast. And that should be a huge warning as far as, of course, they don't have ears to hear it. But I think there's uh, some significant doctrine there. And I want to spend some time exploring that in our next session. Father, thank you for this day, for the truth of your word, for your faithfulness, for uh, providing the uh, opportunity to be here and the, uh, the strength and the voice to speak uh, for the entirety of this session. We thank you for being faithful and we thank you for this day in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.